Well, please open up your Bibles. Turn to Romans chapter 15. The most succinct creed for the Christian church is Jesus is Lord. That was the earliest creed that was found that we have recorded in Scripture. And we must remember that Jesus is Lord alone. He's not one Lord. He is our only Lord. We have no other master. This is important because sometimes we Christians, we like to make up rules for other Christians to follow. We have to be careful that we do not add to what the Lord Jesus Christ has commanded or set ourselves up as an authority over other Christians' conscience. The Lord is your master, and we are not to take away from his commandments or to add to them, but we fulfill the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ when we teach one another to observe all that he has commanded. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, records the words of Jesus Christ in his great commission that we are to teach one another to observe all that he has commanded, to not add to his commands or to take away. And so that's what we've been learning and listening to in Romans chapter 14 in the last couple of weeks. And I want to do a little review and reminder as we start into the message this week. We'll be getting into Romans chapter 15 in a little bit. My plan is to cut the message in half this morning so we can get to the Lord's Supper in a timely fashion. But let me start off with a few things that were important to remind you from last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 10 says, If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So Romans chapter 14 is largely about this same subject the eating of foods or the not eating of foods. And I think the situation in Rome was very like what we had here in Corinth, that it largely revolved around food sacrificed to idols. Now, when we're talking about matters of conscience, I want to be very clear, as clear as I can be, that there is such a thing as objectively wrong. There are actions that people take that are always wrong, no matter whether they think it's wrong or if they don't think it's wrong. There is such a thing as objectively immoral actions. However, there's also such a thing as subjectively immoral actions, and that is the thing is not wrong in and of itself, the action is not wrong in and of itself, but some people might think that it's wrong, and therefore, for the person who thinks that it's wrong and still goes ahead and does it, that's subjective sin. The thing is not wrong in itself, but it's wrong to do what you think is wrong because you're training yourself to not obey Jesus as Lord. The only way we have to know whether or not we're obeying Jesus as Lord is our conscience. And so our conscience needs to be informed, our conscience needs to be taught, our conscience needs to be protected and restored from the harm that we often do to our conscience. But the goal of the scriptural teaching is to give us knowledge of the Lord's way, what is right, what is good, versus the way of the flesh, the way of the devil, the way of this world. And so as we grow in our understanding of right and wrong, it's important that we always obey our conscience. Now, let me make it clear, a further clarification point here, that this subjective nature of sin doesn't work in reverse. 
What I mean by that is, it's true that if someone thinks something is wrong, even though it's not objectively wrong, it makes it wrong for them. But the opposite is not true. If somebody thinks something is right, even though it's not right, that doesn't make it right for them to do so. Okay? So, if something is sinful innately, adultery, theft, you know, one of those types of things, even if someone's conscience is okay with it, that doesn't make it right. There's a certain ignorance that exists among the hearts of men. There's an ignorance of the conscience that does not excuse sin. And our responsibility as Christians is to make known the commandments, to teach one another to observe all that the Lord has commanded. So don't get the idea from Romans chapter 14 that we all just live and let live and whatever you think is right is right and whatever I think is right is right and we're not going to talk about it or discuss it. No, the Bible teaches us right from wrong. And as we grow in our understanding of right and wrong, we want to be patient with one another and we want to be careful that we never encourage a Christian, a fellow Christian, to do something that they think is wrong. But if a Christian thinks what they're doing is right and it's not, it is our responsibility to go and tell them their sin so that they can repent and come to a proper action. How do you know when it's innately wrong and when it's not? Well, that's the Word of God. That's why God's Word is given to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 is another verse we didn't have time for last week. I wanted to make mention of here this morning. It says, all things are lawful for me. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. You see here, Paul is quoting something that the Corinthians like to say, that all things are lawful. And this is a phrase they use to describe the liberty that we have as Christians, that we're free from the law, that the law of Moses is no longer our covenant with God, but now we have a law of Christ, a law of liberty. And they went a little too far with this idea of liberty in Corinth because they started doing things that were not helpful. And they started doing things that dominated their life and that even though the thing might not be sinful in and of itself, if it's not helping you in your Christian life, if it's not helping other Christians, and if it starts to control your life instead of the Lord Jesus Christ controlling your life, well, that's not Christian liberty. That's being taken captive by some desire, something that might not be wrong in and of itself, like playing baseball. But if baseball is your God and that's what dominates and controls your life so that, well, I don't have time to serve the Lord, I don't have time to honor my father and my mother, I don't have time to share the gospel because I'm just all about my baseball, well, then that's something that, while lawful in itself, has become sinful for you because you are being dominated by it. This goes for any addiction that you might go through. Uh, uh, sugar is one of the things I talked about last week. Sugar is not an evil substance, but... If you are dominated by sugar, if it becomes something that controls your decisions, something that controls your actions, well then that's not helpful and it's not good and it's not God's will. So we have to be careful that we don't err on the side of too much liberty and use our liberty as a cover for license, but we also don't err on the side of encouraging other Christians to go against their conscience. So there's, there's definitely a lot of complexity here and I don't think I've nailed it all but hopefully God's word is at work and we're growing in our love for one another and our knowledge of God's will. 
One of the words I threw out you last week, I want to just put up here again because repetition is the key to learning, is adiaphoron. And the adiaphora are the matters about which there's no moral merit or demerit involved in the thing itself. The perfect example that the Bible gives us is the matter of food sacrificed to idols. Eating meat is not sinful or holy. It's just eating meat. It's not morally good. It's not morally bad. So that's a good example of adiaphoron. But there's other things where, you know, it gets a little bit harder to tell. Is it good? Is it bad? And so it'd be nice if we could be really clear and recognize that doctrinal differences are not adiaphora. Doctrine is something that is true or false. False doctrine is bad. True doctrine is good. And so we're not talking about a doctrine here. We're talking about actions. The action of eating meat is not morally good or bad. And so if somebody's conscience bothers them, don't eat the meat. And don't worry so much about it. If you eat meat, if you don't eat meat, not that big of a deal. But if you believe the truth about the second coming, or if you believe error about the second coming, well, that has ramifications. That's important. So we do have to be patient with one another. We still have to be loving towards one another. Those principles don't change. But I just want to be careful that we don't confuse categories and start putting doctrinal differences, and I probably did some of this last week, putting doctrinal differences in the same category, the same discussion, as the matters that don't have any moral merit or demerit. There is falsehood or truth in every doctrine, and, and this is something I think the church sometimes will throw into the category just so that we don't have to discuss and debate doctrine. They'll just say, well, don't pass judgment on one another. This is just like what Paul's talking about in Romans 14. No, that's not what Paul's talking about in Romans 14. So some category distinctions here. The other passage that I wanted to put up here before we get into our text for today is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 18 and 19, where it talks about there has to be necessary divisions. So Romans 14, Romans 15, the message I hope you're getting from me is unity, unity, unity. And we're going to be hitting the unity drum pretty heavy again today. But I just wanted to remind you that not all disunity is unbiblical. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So there's genuine Christians and there's disingenuous Christians. And so we want to have that proper distinction between the true Christian and the false Christian, between the orthodox and the heretical, between the one who really loves the Lord and the one who just pretends to love the Lord. There needs to be that distinction. But as far as those who are truly in Christ and who love the Lord, that's the unity that we're working hard to preserve and to maintain. So don't think that, you know, just because there's different churches, that's necessarily bad. There has to be different churches sometimes because not all churches teach the truth about Jesus Christ and the way of salvation. And so we are supposed to separate from those churches that don't teach the truth about these matters. So just keep that in mind. Sometimes the unity call gets misplayed as trying to bring Christians and non-Christians together or genuine Christians and false Christians together. And that's not the unity that Paul is talking about here in Romans 14. So let's do talk about what unity Paul is pursuing here in Romans chapter 15 this morning. 
I think we're going to get through the first seven verses and we'll leave the last half of this for next week. So follow along in your Bibles as I read for us Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Great summary for what Paul has written in Romans chapter 14. He brings it all together with a final exhortation for the strong, the uh, exhortation there in the first couple of verses, to be looking out for one another, to be edifying one another, and then building upon that, showing us the example of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life and in the scriptures that prophesied his coming, and then that final call to unity in verses 5 through 7. Beautiful words. Let's talk about verses 1 and 2. The obligation of the strong is to bear with the failings of the weak. Notice that word obligation. I like that translation. That's a good translation here, showing that it's not just something that's a good idea. It's not just something that would be the the moral thing to do, but it's actually an obligation, a debt that we owe those who are strong to bear with the weak. Now, when it says bear with, I don't want you to get the idea that Paul is saying here, the strong just have to put up with, you know, the weak. It's like, oh, yeah, they're weak, but... What can you do? We just have to be patient and and bear with them. That's not the idea here. The obligation that the strong have is to bear the load that the weak are bearing. That Paul wrote about this when he wrote to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 6. He said, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So, In this context, remember, the strong are those whose conscience is strong. They are informed on the subject of meat sacrificed to idols. They know there is no such thing as an idol, that it's not tainted meat, that you can eat it and enjoy it and give thanks to God. That's the strong. The weak is the person who says, no, it's tainted by idolatry. It was offered to the the pagan God. I can't eat it with a clear conscience. And so Paul here is saying that the strong believer has a moral obligation to bear the load together with the weak. Now, this is true in families. Maybe you remember when your kids were young and you'd go hiking and your young kids would would wear out pretty quickly on the trail and say, carry me mom, carry me dad. And the obligation of the mom and dad in that case is to carry the child. You're strong, the child is weak, You pick up the child and carry it. That's the way it is in the church. If someone is strong in their faith, in their conscience, their obligation when the weak brother starts to falter, starts to fail, is to bear that burden for the weaker brother. This is what family does. This is a loving relationship. 
Same thing with a team. On a sports team, if somebody's wearing out and weak, then it's the responsibility of the people who have strength to take the load, to carry on, and to help the team to win. And so don't just look at other Christians as a burden or they're causing you problems, but recognize that God has put other Christians into your life as an opportunity for you to show the love of Christ to one another. If we were all strong, which you know in some ways would be great, the downside of that is you wouldn't have the opportunity for God to show how the strong in his family care for and bear the load of the weak. So in this situation, what Paul means when he says the strong have the obligation, in this matter of food sacrifice to idols, it means that when the church got together for their love feast, when they got together in the home of one of the church members and they all brought their bread and they brought their food and they brought their wine and they were having their communion service together with a common meal, that you didn't bring in food sacrifice to idols into that common meal for the sake of those in the church who thought that that was wrong and who couldn't participate in that. And it was causing division, causing dissension. So why do you have to bring that meat into the feast? You don't. We say, well, it's my right. It's no, nothing wrong with it. I should be able to do what I want to do. Well, yeah, you're right. There's nothing wrong with it. You should be able to do what you want to do. But why don't you want to do what helps your brother and brings about unity instead of just doing what you enjoy? That's what Paul means when he says we should seek to please our neighbor in verse 2 and not just ourselves. Let us each please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Paul writes about this pleasing our neighbor in 1 Corinthians as well. And I'll show you that verse in a minute. But a great example I thought of of pleasing our neighbor for his good is in our family we like to have a family movie night. And I've got kids who are 15 down to age 7. Now, kids who are 7 don't necessarily like the same movies that 15-year-olds like, right? And a 7-year-old can't watch an intense action movie with lots of drama and thrilling scenes and, and danger without getting really worked up and without getting scared and kind of overwhelmed by the thing. And so the person who is older in this case is like the strong believer. Yeah, I can watch you know, dinosaurs tearing apart cars and, and have that intense music playing and, and the rain falling. And, and it doesn't bother me. I just find it fun. But for a little girl, that's terrifying, right? And so we don't have to watch that movie for family movie night. We can wait until she's older and she can enjoy it. And we don't just say, well, there's nothing wrong with it. It's fine. Christians can watch these movies. We don't just say, well, what do I want? What makes me happy? What do I feel like watching? But we look out for one another. We think, well, what would be fun for my little sister to watch? So that's the attitude that Paul is trying to develop in the church. Instead of us looking out for ourselves, doing what we like, well, this is the kind of music that I like. This is what makes me worship the Lord. And, and there's nothing wrong with it, so I should be able to do it. Well, yeah, that's, that's all true. But what about your love for your brother? What about your desire for the unity of the church? That's what Paul is driving at. Let us please our neighbor for his good, to build him up. Now, Paul recognizes that when he says we should please our neighbor, that some Christians are going to be like, ah, man pleaser, man pleaser, whoop, 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 alarm going off. And so Paul clarifies very quickly what he means when he says to please the neighbor. That means to build him up. It means 
for his good. So we're not being the kind of man-pleaser who's just weakly compliant with the wishes of others. Oh, I don't care. Whatever you want, sign with me. Paul's not talking about that type of attitude. He's saying that we are willing to give up our desires for the spiritual good of the other person. In contrast, the man-pleaser in the church is the one who is willing to tamper with the Word of God, who is willing to peddle the Word of God, who is willing to downplay certain doctrines, who is willing to agree with the world in order to avoid persecution. That's the kind of man-pleasing that Paul is against. But when it comes to pleasing our Christian brothers, what he's talking about is doing what is for their edification, for their good. We're not flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. That's not the kind of man-pleasing that he's talking about here. He's talking about being sincere in Christ, doing what is going to most encourage and build up the faith of others. And that's a manly resolution. That's a manly sacrifice. It's not just some wimpy whatever you want type of attitude. Instead, you know what's good, you know what's right, and you take deliberate actions for what is best for others. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 33, Paul gives a very similar idea because what he's writing in 1 Corinthians has the parallel here in Romans, and so there's a lot of overlap between 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 and Romans 14 and 15. And so Paul wrote there, he says... I try to please everyone in everything I do. Well, there's the man-pleaser alarm going off, right? Not seeking my own advantage. I'm not trying to promote myself, but I'm seeking the advantage of many that they may be saved. So Paul, everything he does as an evangelist is in order to lead people to Christ. Now you need wisdom in that. You can't be peddling God's word and taking the hard parts out of it in order to try to get people to respond. That's not going to get people saved. That's going to produce false converts. And there's a lot of people who use verses like this to try to justify just that kind of man-pleasing. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's saying, I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to go without. I'm willing to do what needs to be done in order to make the gospel clear. Everything he did was to make the gospel clear. He wasn't trying to manipulate people into a certain response. He was just trying to make sure that his actions led to the proclamation of the gospel in its purity. And then also in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he talks about the weak. He says, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So when we're talking in the sphere of evangelism, we're willing to give up our rights, we're willing to give up our preferences, we're willing to do whatever it takes in order to make the gospel clear and make a straight road for people to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, when it comes to edification, building up the church, we've got the same attitude. We've got the self-sacrificing love that does whatever is going to contribute to the growth of the Christian church, the growth of individual Christians, and the whole body of Christ together. We're willing to sacrifice personal preferences for the sake of the common good. Now, that is a sacrifice that is voluntary on Paul's part. Nobody took away Paul's rights, and in fact, he stood up for his rights when he had to, But when we voluntarily lay down our rights for the sake of others, that's what's good and noble. So we shouldn't go around to other people saying, well, you've got to give up your rights for me. That's selfishness. 
So the weak can't be selfish in going around demanding that other people give up their rights for their sake. But the strong, they can't be selfish and saying, well, I get to have my rights. The strong willingly lays down their rights of their own accord, not because of social pressure, but because of love for God and love for neighbor. That's key. Understanding how rights are properly set aside, not by social pressure, not by people demanding it, but by people willingly doing it out of a spirit of genuine love and wisdom. Another key verse here in 1 Corinthians, same chapter, chapter 9, verse 19, Paul said, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. And I think this is probably the verse that inspired Martin Luther's great quote. You've probably heard it before. A Christian man is a most free Lord of all, subject to none. Yes, you're free. You're completely free. But a Christian man is a most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. How is that possible? How can you be a free Lord and a most dutiful servant? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He's God of very God. He has no one above him. All authority in heaven and on earth was his before the world was, and it's his now. But he laid aside that power. He laid aside that glory. He didn't assert his own rights, but he came to be a servant to all. And so, just like Christ is free, he set us free. We're not bound by sin. We're not bound by fear of man. But now our heart is free to do the will of God, even as Christ was free from social pressure to be able to do what was right in the sight of God. That's our freedom. But we don't use our freedom to assert our rights and to assert ourselves. Like Christ, we use our freedom to serve others. A self-sacrificing love, that is the freedom that we have in Christ. Wonderful thought there from Martin Luther. Not every thought from Martin Luther was great, but that was one of his good ones. Then one of the verses from 1 Corinthians that's important for us to highlight this morning is in chapter 10, verse 24. Let no one seek his own good. Don't seek your own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here. Please the neighbor, please your neighbor, for his good to build him up. Now, Let's go on to verses 3 and 4. Here we've got the example of Christ laid out before us. And you know, I've already jumped the gun there, already talking about Christ's example and how he was the most free Lord of all and yet became the servant of all. So we're following the example of Christ in this as we follow his example in all things. And the scripture verse that Paul selects for the example of Christ is quite puzzling. Look at it again, verse 3 in Romans chapter 15. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's from Psalm 69, verse 9. If you're taking notes, you can jot that down. If you have a cross-reference Bible, I'm sure it's already there in your side column or down at the bottom of the page. Psalm 69, verse 9 is one of those messianic psalms. Now, let me explain to you the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is largely about David. David is the key figure. He wrote half the Psalms in the book. And a lot of the Psalms then are about 
the Davidic dynasty and God's covenant with David and all of that. And David, he and his life suffered for years before he was exalted to become king of God's nation. Remember when Saul was king and God told Samuel to go out to the household of Jesse and to anoint the next king of Israel. And when Samuel obeyed the Lord and went and found David, David was declared to be a man after God's own heart who would do all of God's will. And when Samuel anointed him, when he was just a young man, still probably a teenager, it was a long time before he became king. He was God's anointed, he was God's Christ, for years before he became king of the people. This is paralleled in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was anointed by God to be king, ruler, not only over Israel, but over every nation that is on the face of the earth. But it's going to be some time from the time that Jesus Christ was anointed, christened, until the time that he sits on the throne in Jerusalem and reigns like David. And so the life of David and the life of Jesus Christ are set up as parallel in God's plan for history, so that the book of Psalms, which is all about David, is also actually all about Jesus. And many of the Psalms that talk about David, that are written by David, find their parallel, their fulfillment, so to speak. It's not direct prophecy like some prophecies we have in the Bible, where the prophet will be talking only about this future event. But as a parallelism, as a type, It's a prophecy of Christ. And so that's the understanding of Psalms that Paul writes with, that all the New Testament authors read the book of Psalms with that Christological lens. They see David as the type of Christ, and that's what makes these Psalms messianic. So Psalm 69, which is a psalm about the sufferings of David, how much he is reproached, how much people despise him, how many difficult, hard times he goes through, Paul says this is really about Jesus. Yes, it happened to David, it's true about David, but it's pointing ahead to the life of Jesus Christ. And so Paul picks this out, out of all the Psalms he could have picked, out of all the verses he could have picked here, why Psalm 69 verse 9? And I really wrestled with that. It was puzzling me all week long. Why this one? And I think I have a pretty good idea. This verse does not directly relate to giving up one's rights, like Paul's been talking about in the immediate context. It doesn't directly relate to bearing one another's burdens, like he was talking about in verse 1. When it says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, the you in this context is God the Father. And the me in this context is the Christ, the anointed. And so he's not talking about me bearing reproaches that are towards you, which would make more sense in this context because we're the strong are bearing the weak. No, instead he's focused on the relationship of Christ to God and how Christ was willing to suffer for God's sake. And here, Paul is broadening out the example from just this specific issue of meat sacrifice to idols and the strong and the weak to our whole attitude in everything. We as Christians are following the example of Jesus Christ and that we're willing to suffer in the will of God out of our love for God. 
And so when you are a strong Christian and you're bearing the burden of your weak brother, you don't look at that and you say, oh man, I wish I didn't have these weak brothers around that were always ruining all my fun. I can't have my meat at my feast because you have a problem with it. No, that's not your attitude. Your attitude as a Christian is, I'm so glad that God has put this person in my life so that I can have a Christ-like attitude of looking out for them and sacrificing my interests in order to help them along in their Christian walk because that's what a Christian is all about. That's what Christ was all about. It's all over the Psalms. It's all over the Gospels. It's all over the New Testament that being a Christian is about sacrificing yourself for the good of others. And that's what Psalm 69 is about. And Paul... He's bringing in Psalm 69, verse 9 here because he's reminding us subtly that Christians will suffer. It's not easy to follow Christ in this world because this world is hostile towards Christ. And the more you're like Christ, the more you're going to suffer from the world. And so we better have unity in the household of God. We better have a family atmosphere here where we love one another and care for one another and we're not fighting with one another and we're not resenting one another and we're not judging one another. You're going to have enough trouble from the world that you don't need trouble from fellow Christians. We need to be loving each other because the world hates us. This is a message that comes across very strongly in 1 John. It comes across very strongly in Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of John. And Paul brings it out in his letter to the Philippians, which is the letter of unity and the letter of joy. And he's bringing it in here very subtly as he's transitioning from the subject of food sacrifice to idols to just our general relationship of unity within the church. The reproaches of those who reproached God fell on Christ. And we are going to follow that example and we need to be strong together to be able to do that. He says there in verse 4, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, if I had time, we'd go look at Philippians chapter 2. Maybe we'll, we'll do that again next week. It was in our scripture reading because it's the perfect passage to go along with what Paul is talking about here, the example of Christ in putting other people first, how that creates such a wonderful spirit of unity. And the Philippians, they were encouraged along that line because they were suffering for Christ and they needed endurance and they needed encouragement. And the scriptures are what give us endurance and encouragement. When you read the Bible, the Bible is going to work in you these twin virtues, the virtue of endurance and the virtue of encouragement. Because When you read through the book of Psalms, you find out that it's not easy to follow God. Being the godly person in an ungodly world is very difficult and it's very hard. So you're going to need encouragement and you're going to need endurance. And that's what all the stories of the Bible are designed to give you. You read about Daniel, you read about Moses, you read about Isaiah, you read about Jeremiah, you read about Jesus, you read about Paul, you read about Peter, and all of those stories about all those people, they remind you, you need endurance. You need encouragement. God was faithful to them. God's going to be faithful to you. Keep on, carry on, don't be discouraged. The work of the scriptures will give you strength to carry on in the Christian life. They will encourage you in the midst of many trials and difficulties. Paul wrote to the church, he spoke to the churches, and said, it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom. And so, what do you need in tribulation? You need endurance. You need encouragement. And that's what scripture provides for us. 
Now, Scripture is not the only thing that provides that for us. We'll find out that prayer also is key in providing that for us, and we'll save that for next week. We'll get into verses 5 through 7, the final call to unity, and verses 8 through 13, and so how Scripture has brought Jew and Gentile together in the church. We'll drive this point of unity home one more week.